Okay, you'll want to get out your sermon outline. It says, judging others on it. There are some folks here that I don't know today. I would love to meet you after uh, the service. Um, Hopefully we'll get a chance to do that. Glad you are here. We are in a series on the most misused and misunderstood verses of the Bible. And uh, uh, diving in today with what may be one of the most, by far, misused verses. And that comes to us from Matthew chapter 7. So I'm going to read from there, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Please listen carefully as this is God's word. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people, and you've brought us again to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask this morning, enlighten our eyes, that we would see the truth and that you would cause that truth to penetrate our hearts, that we would see ourselves as we are, that we would not fool ourselves into thinking we're more righteous than we are, and we might see those areas where our lives displease you. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us, help us to see Jesus, and as always, uh, we need your grace. Give us the desire, just as with the little kids, to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Like most of us, uh, John Burke, is, he's a pastor in Austin, uh, Texas, he assumed that he was not a judgmental person. And uh, just in case he was wrong, he tried an experiment. And for a whole week, he actually kept track. He wrote down all the judgments he made about other people. And here's what he discovered. Judging others is fun. Judging others makes you feel good. He writes, I'm not sure I've gone a single day without this sin. In any given week, I might condemn my son numerous times for a messy room, judge my daughter for being moody, which especially bothers me when I'm being moody. Uh, But I have a good reason. Even my dog gets the hammer of condemnation for his breath. Some of you may be thinking, wait. Are you saying correcting my kids for a messy room is judging? He says no. But there's a correction that values with mercy, and there's a correction that devalues with judgment. He goes on, he says, I watch the news and I condemn those idiotic people who do such things. Most reality TV shows are full of people I can judge as sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, or childish. Then I get in my car. And I find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test. And I throw in a little condemnation on the DMV for good measure. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization 
that makes it impossible to find what I'm looking for, all the while being tortured with Muzak. Who picks that music anyways? And I stand in the shortest line, which I judge is way too long, because look, people, it says 10 items or less. I count more than that in three of your baskets. What is wrong with you people? And why can't that teenage check her? What is she wearing? Focus on her work so we can get out of here. We just roll with it. It just happens. It's so natural. It's our favorite pastime. And if we're honest, but we're not, but if we were, we're great at judging the world around us by standards that we would highly resent being held to ourselves. Judging makes us feel good because it puts us in a better light than others. So we would really like it if we were somehow able to not be judgmental. However, that's way harder than it sounds. Uh, reading, rereading an article by John Mayer, not the singer, but Dr. John Mayer, professor of psychology at the University of New Hampshire. I bet he gets interesting email. Man, I love your song. Uh, anyway, Dr. John Mayer writes a regular column in psychology today called The Personality Analyst. And one of those columns, he writes about the difficulty of not judging. He says, I conclude that almost any information about a person can convey a judgment or be perceived as if it does. There's a certain irreducible judginess to the communication of information about our personalities. Judgments often are implicit in messages about people and personality. And even when judgments are not there, the message can still be perceived as judgmental by the recipient. So that means that all of us are judgmental, whether we're aware of it or not. And it's almost impossible to communicate even non-verbally without being judgmental. So what do we do with Jesus' now impossible command in today's passage Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Well, if you remember, uh, and I hope you do, I told you last week and many other weeks that one of the most important rules in understanding the scriptures is context is king. You must understand the context in order to understand the passage. The second major rule, there's actually a bunch of rules, but these are the two most important. The second major rule for understanding the scriptures correctly is scripture interprets scripture. It's a warning not to base your understanding of what the Bible teaches on any particular topic on a single verse, but on everything the Bible teaches on that topic. We want the whole counsel of God to inform us. And both of those rules actually apply to today's topic of right and wrong judging. In this passage, part of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus turns his attention to our heart attitudes and a whole variety of relationships. In this passage before us, perhaps one of the best known in all the Gospels, it's also, as he said, the most misunderstood. Judge not that you be not judged. 
You may have heard that. You think of times where people have used that phrase. Most of whom don't actually know who said it or where it comes from. It's a phrase that's used countless times in all kinds of uh, conversations and contentious arguments, defensive moments. Someone is confronted by something they've done or something they've said, some sort of behavior. And the reply goes something like, but doesn't the Bible say, judge not that you be not judged? Those famous words of Jesus are recited by so many people, but profoundly misunderstood. And I think you could even argue that Matthew 7 verse 1 is by far the most frequently misapplied verse in the Bible. It's used and abused by Christians and non-Christians alike. Dr. Uh, Mark Devers, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist in downtown D.C., uh, he writes, could it be that in our day a misunderstanding of Matthew 7, 1 has become a shield for sin? Has worked to prevent the kind of congregational life that was known by the churches of an earlier day and could be known by us again. Those who mishandle this verse often use it as a shield for sin, some sort of barrier to keep others at bay allowing them to justify living however they please without any regard for moral boundaries or accountability. And the objections sound just like that. You know, aren't we all sinners? What gives us the right to make moral judgments about someone else? Isn't that God's job? However, we take a close look at the context of Matthew 7, the teachings of all the scriptures, it's clear this verse cannot and should not be used to substantiate unrestrained moral freedom, autonomy, or independence. Not Jesus' intent. He's not advocating a hands-off approach to moral accountability, refusing to allow anyone to make any sorts of moral judgments about anything. It's actually the opposite. Jesus here is explicitly rebuking the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who are quick to see the sins of others but were blind and unwilling to hold themselves to the same standard they're imposing on everyone else. And we are children of the Pharisees. I have no difficulty at all in confessing your sin. It is enormously hard for me to confess my sin. And I feel most of you feel that way. So let's look closer at Matthew 7. As I said, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount, a place where Jesus teaches what does it mean to live faithfully as a follower of Christ, to pursue holiness out of reverence for God. He's proclaiming a very high moral standard consistent with what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, those who repent and place their faith in Christ alone for their salvation, they become children of God or adopted into God's family, become members of a spiritual kingdom he's established on earth. Believers who live in this kingdom are called to live differently. And Jesus is simply explaining what that looks like in a very practical way. His words are not hard to understand. He sets up a strong moral ethic that reflects what it means to love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. 
So here he addresses the issue of hypocrisy. Starts verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. And verse 5, he ends with you hypocrite. This passage is about our evaluation of other people, especially with regard to their faults. How do we relate to people who are at fault? How do we relate to people who are at fault in their treatment of us? And one thing we learn is that the way we think and speak about them reveals a whole lot about us. If we're quick to condemn them, perhaps we haven't fully grasped God's mercy for us. If we're not ready to be merciful to them, perhaps we don't know the mercy of God for us quite as well as we think we do. So Christ's teaching about how we ought to speak and how we ought to correct those who are at fault gives us an opportunity to learn about our own hearts, to learn if we've really understood God's grace the way uh, that we should. And so Jesus gives us directions about how to conduct ourselves regarding the faults of others. So the first thing we read is his caution about being a judge. His caution about being a judge. Verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, a critical spirit, a judgmental spirit, a condemning spirit is somewhat common to human nature. The media, our social relationships, our online relationships, school, work, all immersed in it. And though often it's done in a joking manner, when you're the one experiencing it, it can be really, really unpleasant. Few things are more uh, emotionally exhausting than getting hit by harsh, unloving criticism. Even sadder, the church itself is full of people who make a habit of criticism and condemnation. There are people who think their uh, critical spirit is a spiritual gift. I don't think Jesus would agree. Because our Lord sets the record straight in no uncertain terms. He tells us how we should relate to our brothers and sisters in this matter of being judgmental. He's not mincing words here. He says, judge not that you be not judged. And again, his words have been subject to much misunderstanding. These First two words, judge not, have been taken by some that mean Christians shouldn't ever exercise any critical judgment. Some believe Christians should be totally accepting whatever the situation and Christ's likeness gets equated with some sort of pious, all-accepting blindness. I think it's very ironic. The world loves opinionated people. Its cultural darlings are those who are articulate and dogmatic about their positions on uh, politics, art, music, literature, culture, you name it. However, when it comes to matters of individual morality, the world hates opinionated people, especially if they represent the biblical standards for morality. In those matters, it adores the non-judgmental person. And the reasons this text cannot be made to say that we're never to judge, I think, are simple and obvious. First, 
Verse 6 immediately follows this passage um, teaching on judgment. And Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. You cannot obey Jesus' command here unless you judge who are dogs and who are pigs. A few verses later, uh, Matthew 7, verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How do you know who the false prophets are, who the false teachers are? You have to make a judgment. And you have to be careful because you can judge wrong as well as right. And as one who has been called a wolf in sheep's clothing, you need to be discerning that you're saying that based on what's being taught and not just because of a personality conflict. These verses require discerning, discriminating judgment on our part. I think there's a lot of additional scriptures that exhort us to exercise judgment. John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We have a, exercise, a, a, a duty to exercise right judgment. I think what Christ is saying when he says judge not is to refrain from critical condemning judgment. I think there's a universe of difference between being discerning and being critical. Discerning is being constructive, critical is being destructive. And a person with a destructive, critical spirit often revels in the criticism for its own sake. One of the most prominent characteristics of this sort of uh, critical, fault-finding person is they often focus on things of little importance and treat them as matters of great importance. Now think about how this applies in the church. We can judge the spirituality of another young couple by observing how they discipline their children. We can judge people by the version of the Bible they carry or whether their theology agrees with mine point by point. And so it goes. Pettiness on secondary issues It's condemned in the Bible, condemned by the Apostle Paul in the strongest terms, Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Some versions translate that as accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. He adds another place, Romans 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What do we dislike the most in other people? The things we dislike the most in us. I don't like it in me, but I can't stand it when I see the same thing in you. We set the standard and tone for our own judgment by our own judgmental conduct. And we prove by how we judge others that we know what's right. So if we don't do what's right, we condemn ourselves. We see that also in the book of James. 
James 3, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I'm not sure that verse should even be in the Bible. It's, you know, James kind of iffy. The, uh, you know, if you become a teacher, you set yourself up as a religious authority over others and act accordingly, and you'll be judged by the authority that you claim. Do I claim to have an exceptional knowledge and grasp of scripture? I'll be judged accordingly. Do I claim to be a wise and discerning person? I will be judged according to the position I assume. If we set ourselves up as authorities and judges over others, we shouldn't be surprised or complain when we're judged by our own standard. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 2. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce... You will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And how will that affect us? How will that affect us eternally? If you know the scriptures, you know there's two eternal judgments. One's a separation of believers and unbelievers. And then one's a judgment of believers, what rewards you get for this life. And you can see that. You go to Matthew 25 and other places. And true believers, of course, are the sheep who will go to be with God and then appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive their proper rewards. And their God will judge us as we have judged others. And judgmental believers, they'll still get to be with God, but they'll have very little reward because of their critical spirit will have diminished much of the good that they have done. And very few of us would even dare pray, God judge me as I judge others. Our Lord means to put a holy fear in us that we would put away our critical hearts. God is going to judge us as we judge others. And the tone of our life is going to become the tone of our judgment. Second Corinthians five says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. There's nothing more ungodly than a critical spirit. And nothing more unchristlike than this self-righteousness that's always looking for something wrong in someone else. Now the Lord extends his argument even further. We see starting in verse 3, caution particularly about being a hypocrite. Says there, caution about being a hypocrite. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. So the second thing Jesus says, not just about truth, but he says something about love. He's telling us that Truth without love isn't really truth. And he's given us this very famous, it's almost a comical statement. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? Of course, it's comical because what you really have here is a blind ophthalmologist. That's the picture. Okay, maybe Jesus is trying to be funny. I don't know. I think so. But, you know, it's like, Here you are, you're coming in for this surgery uh, to perform surgery on somebody with your sunglasses on. You're going to do eye surgery and you're like, I can hardly see straight. 
I don't know, it's like daylight out here. Let me put on some sunglasses. It's scary, it's funny, it's pathetic, all at the same time. The picture that Jesus is painting is ludicrous, it's sarcastic, it forces you to think. Now, this word translated log is a huge piece of wood. Think like a rafter in your house. Okay, we're not talking about a stick you'll find outside. We're talking about this giant rafter in your house sticking out of your head. And the speck is like this minute piece of sawdust. And with this monstrous log in your own eye, you know, your vision, it's not just impaired. You are blinded. And the idea of then lending a helping hand to someone else, how do you even move that log over? You know, you're just like whacking everybody is coming over to check them out. I mean, it's impossible, but it's also comical. And I think it's very interesting here. We don't get lost in the sort of ridiculousness of the situation, but the fact that Jesus is talking about the faults of others as specks. He's talking about our faults as logs. I think he might have gotten that reversed, you know, clearly he got a little mixed up there. But he knows our tendency is just that. Our tendency is to think that your faults are big. Ours are just minor mistakes. Other people's faults, especially directed at me, are horrible. But my faults, they're just, you know, they're little glitches that I have once in a while. Should be easily smoothed over. And Jesus actually reverses the whole picture and he says... Be careful about a fault-finding spirit. Keep a sense of um, proportion about the sins of others. Again, small specks for others, big log for ourselves. And our tendency is to be harsh with those who've harmed us or done us wrong. But Jesus is telling us here in this story, I want you to be harsh with yourself. I want you to be harsh with your own sin. And I want you to be patient with the faults of others. And the tragedy of this whole story, of course, is that it's so common. One of the most well-known stories about this is the story of King David. Most of you know it. Low moral point in his life, having taken Uriah's wife, committed adultery with her, discovered she was pregnant, so he has Uriah murdered. King David was a talented man. He wiped out all Ten Commandments in like one day. But the prophet shows up, Nathan, and he comes and he doesn't just come barging in. He comes in and he says, I have a story to share with you. There's a rich man and has huge flocks of sheep and he lives next to a poor man. The poor man has one little lamb that he loves. But the rich man, not wanting to take a lamb out of his own herds, took the poor man's little lamb and slaughtered it. And David's response is classic. It's utter indignation. You find the story, 2 Samuel 15. It says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan points the prophetic finger at the king and pronounces, Thou art the man. Because it just sounds better in the King James. 
Nathan says to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Forget someone else's speck. Look at the log in your own eye, David. Jesus is once again condemning, judging others for doing the same thing you do. He's condemning this pharisaical nature of condemning others while refusing to examine our own lives for sin. We find it so easy to turn a microscope on another person's sin and we look at ours through the wrong end of a telescope. We use strong terms for someone else's sin, but euphemisms for our own. We can easily spot a speck of phoniness in someone else but miss the logjam of phoniness in our own lives. That is just as true for me as it is for you. Furthermore, we especially, as I said, we hate our own faults when we see them in others. Wrath towards the speck in someone else's life may come from the suppressed guilt of having that same sin in our life. And Jesus is telling us that log-toting speck inspectors are hypocrites. Because they don't really care about the speck in the other person's eye. They really care about building themselves up in their own eyes. And the pattern's universal. Self-righteousness turns harshly critical and produces a false compassion. Here, let me help you with that speck. Which in turn produces a contempt for that person. And there is little that damages relationships. Any relationship friends, spouses, family, siblings, parents, whatever, there's little that damage a relationship more than contempt. So what are we to do instead? Well, Jesus not only tells us to stop uh, being a hypocrite, but he tells us to start being a brother, start being a sister in Christ. And so this passage ends, the very end of verse 5, we have a caution about being a brother or being a sister says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He never says, don't take the speck out. He says, first get the log out of yours before you even look at the other person's eye. We're to judge ourselves first. Take the log out of your own eye. Both the Old and New Testament calls us to do this. And when we do it and we can see ourselves as we really are, we can see others as they really are. And instead of being critical, we weep for ourselves and for them. When we've removed the log from our eye and we can clearly see to take the speck out of our brother's eye or our sister's eye. You know, Jesus is not encouraging this sort of a laissez-faire, I don't care attitude towards other believers. He wants us to discern the sins and shortcomings in others, but through clear, self-judged eyes that are tender and compassionate. It's so hard to do. It's so easy to read it here. I can't tell you how many times I thought I've said something or written something that I thought was compassionate and it hurt somebody who I had no intention of hurting. And I'm like, how did I do that? And partly is because we forget how delicate the human eye is. The procedure for removing a speck from your eye is difficult. It's delicate. 
I'm not sure there's much in the human body more sensitive than the eye. You know, we touch it, it closes. I am like the worst uh, optometrist appointment on the planet. I would rather go to the dentist and get drilled without Novocaine than go to the eye doctor. There is little I fear more. I'm not sure I've ever threatened my dentist, maybe once. But, I mean, eye doctors should just live in fear of me because I'm their worst patient. You know, they probably have like notes in there like, you know, strap this guy down or something. I don't like people messing with my eyes. And so when we turn that to the spiritual realm, clearly what's needed is gentleness, carefulness, patience, sympathy. Because we're really not dealing with the eye. We're dealing with the soul, most sensitive part of a human. And we have to be humble and sympathetic, conscious of our own sins without condemnation. We need God's mercy. We need to be people who can speak the truth in love because we've received the truth in love. And he reminds us again, be careful to examine ourselves before we presume to examine others. We have a threefold pattern how we do that. He says, verse 5, first take the log out of your own eye. Deal with your own faults before you go about the practice of correcting someone else. He says, before we correct, before we finish our assessment, we have to examine ourselves. We have to look at our own motives. Why am I exercised about this? Why do I want to assess and evaluate and rebuke this brother for this? What are my methods going to be? How am I going to do this in the most encouraging way in the most profitable way what are my intentions am i doing this to feel better about myself or do i really want to see the church built up and this brother and sister built up what about my personal sin am i guilty of the same thing that i'm about to point out or accuse this brother or sister of being guilty of first jesus says you must examine yourself first take the log out of our own eyes And repent. Repent of your own sins. And then seek to have a broken heart for the sins of others. And I think Jesus is trying to teach us to correct and reprove people with this view of building them up. Encouraging them. Helping them. Serving them. Not to tear them down. To make them stronger. Not just to make ourselves look better or holier or wiser. And Jesus gives these instructions, the way we're supposed to go about doing this, essentially comes down to repent, weep, then correct. We would do well to ask ourselves, who have I been critical of? Has my focus on their faults blinded me to my faults? We need to ask God to help us see us as we are. So all this is good to know. What do we do with it? I know we're almost out of time. Let's look at the gospel and criticism. That's our application. We'll finish with this. We'll be quick. The gospel is supposed to transform how we give criticism and how we receive criticism, especially as it relates to our uh, personal relationships. And I think as it relates to our online activity, social networks, blogs, Facebook have only made it easier to criticize without accountability and to judge outside of community. It's easy to make that snarky comment. I have made many a snarky comment. Particularly about someone when you don't have to look them in the eye. 
You're not sitting down. You're not talking to them across the table. You're not face to face. And so I think the gospel transforms how we give and receive criticism four ways, which is essentially just a reminder of the gospel uh, as a whole. We're first, we're reminded we're made in the image of God. Whenever there's a disagreement or you see something you don't like in somebody else or you're, you're mad about something, it could be something big and systemic like racial reconciliation. It could be something minor because this person just said something to me. And But we have to stop and think. We, we just read Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We read Psalm 139. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. We are God's handiwork. All of us are made in the image of God. And that and that alone gives us value. What we do has value because we imitate his creativity in creation. None of us is left without a touch of God in how we're made and in what we do. And being made in the image of God confers value. When's the last time you told someone else in this church, you have value, you are loved. I may disagree with you. I may not even like you. Blah, 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 blah. There could be a thousand things wrong with you. But you are valued and you are loved because you know Jesus and you're here. We need to get in the habit of saying that kind of stuff. Second, the gospel does tell us that we're sinful. Can't get away from that. Charles Spurgeon once said, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him because you're worse than he thinks. (laughs) You know, I've often said that uh, when you want to complain about me to one of the elders, they can with a clear conscience say, oh, it's way worse than you think. But often criticism stings us because there may be a teaspoon of truth within that cup of criticism. And sometimes there's a cup of truth within the teaspoon of criticism. We know we're sinful. And we almost always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But it's hard to hear the perspective of someone else who may not be giving us the benefit of the doubt. So the gospel tells us we're made in the image of God, but we are sinful. But then it tells us we're adopted. We're adopted by God. We've been declared righteous and joined his family, being transformed into the image of his son. We're more than the sum total of our sins. And finally, it tells us we'll be vindicated on the last day. The great uh, evangelist uh, George Whitfield said, I think this is a wonderful quote, I am content to wait till judgment day for the clearing up of my reputation. You know, we need to like, chisel that and all that white marble in D.C. I am content to wait till judgment day for the clearing up of my reputation. We need to learn to be content with the righteousness of Christ while waiting for that vindication. Since we've been commissioned to proclaim a message of faith and repentance to those outside the church who need to hear the good news, certainly we need to proclaim that same message of faith and repentance to those inside the church. So therefore, Jesus is not forbidding all moral judgment or accountability. He's forbidding harsh, prideful, hypocritical judgment that condemns people 
outright without first evaluating your own spiritual condition and your own commitment to forsake your own sin. And it's my contention that the popular misuse of this verse to do not judge at some level reveals how the discipline of knowing the Bible and sound biblical study and and understanding the scriptures, how far that has fallen. More than that, it sheds light on the state of the culture in which we live, which is seeking to avoid accountability and avoid responsibility. You know, much Jen shared with us, Sancti of Human Life Sunday, how much of that issue is actually an avoidance of accountability and responsibility? I'm not saying all of it, but certainly a lot of it. This mentality runs counter to Scripture. The collective teaching of the Bible insists that those who are created in the image of God are morally responsible to God and morally responsible to one another. So to use do not judge as a means of dismissing your own moral responsibility would be to interpret in a way that puts it against the rest of Scripture. You know, it's been said that young ministers um, are often too zealous. may speak from experience on this. And often quick to begin public rebukes for the sins of other people in their churches. And there was one minister in the South who publicly rebuked various members of his congregation. As you can imagine, the congregation blew apart. An older, wiser Presbyterian minister pulled him aside and said, Young man, in the old Southern Presbyterian church, we felt it was our privilege to first weep with a man before we disciplined him. That's good advice. The biblical pattern is to repent, weep, then correct. Take that to heart. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, when I rubbed my irritated eyes this morning... I realized it wasn't morning eye, but a big log stuck in there. I didn't realize it, but I spent too much of this week as a prosecuting attorney, judge and jury, warden and executioner, bad drivers, slow clerks, obnoxious online posts, political juggernauts, even red lights, lots of easy targets for my bad attitude. And just because I don't get large and loud doesn't mean I can't be angry and critical. Homicide in my heart is still homicide. Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. Have mercy on us. Because I don't think I'm alone in all this. Jesus, you who are so forbearing, kind, patient, gracious, have mercy on us, the self-righteous sinners. Our self-righteousness usually shows up not in trying to merit more of your love, but in withholding your love from others, getting irritated and becoming rigid and being passively aggressive. 
Jesus, you need to be both our cardiologist and our ophthalmologist. Bring your grace and truth to bear in my heart and my eyes. I want to love as you love and see as you see. And I don't want people to feel pressure to change who they are around me, nor do I want them to feel any indifference to their situation. Teach us, lead us in the way of the gospel. Since you do call us to help one another with our specks in our eyes. Help us to be the kind of people who help with life-giving rebukes. As a humble recipient of the grace that belongs to those who long for freedom. Grant each of us a correctable heart. Grant each of us quick repentance. Grant each of us the grace of the gospel. So very amen, I pray in Jesus' gracious and forbearing name.